Shalom, shalom, shalom. Hey, what's going on? My name is Michael Sano, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast. I am sharing the table today with Dave Mason. Dave Mason, a spiritual seeker and author of the Age of Prophecy series and a number of other books. Dave, welcome, welcome, welcome. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, not a problem. How was that intro? Did you like that intro? Was it good? Loved it. Nailed it. <laughs> Yay. Oh, I got to pat myself on the back because, man, there is so much to you. There is a lot to un- unpack. I mean, I do research on this and I go back and I check people out. A um, little bit of Facebook stock. No, no, not at all. Um, but I was on your LinkedIn and there are so many aspects between your LinkedIn and everything that's on the back of your book describing who you are, wow, holy cow, it's an honor to sit here with you. Well, that's funny because I almost never go on LinkedIn, so I don't even know what's up there, but I hope it's, <laughs> hope it's interesting. <laughs> definitely, definitely. All right, um, a little bit of background. Um, where are you from? Connecticut. Yeah, you're from West Hartford. West Hartford, Connecticut. So I'm from hard hitting New Britain. So we are neighbors. Holy cow. Well, New Britain and West Hartford, worlds apart. It is really nice over there. <laughs> so um, tell me a little bit about your story, a little bit about your background um, growing up in, uh, in Connecticut and why, how you eventually wound up on the path you're on. Okay, fantastic. So, like I said, grew up in Bloomfield and West Hartford and grew up as a Reformed Jew. Okay. And it was not something I was terribly into, I have to say. I wasn't terribly excited about my Judaism. I never thought I'd wind up here in Israel. And that kind of shifted through a couple things. One, my connection to Israel mm-hmm. was different. I first came to Israel when I was seven. My family spent a month on kibbutz, which was amazing. Wow. And then I came back when I was 16 on a non-Jewish program, but it's like a multi-cultural program. And we spent time with you know Jews and with Arabs and we kind of saw everything. Came back again for a semester in college. And that's when I really first got exposed to a totally different approach to Judaism. But even before that, when I first got to college, I went to Colorado College actually with Mike Foyer, who is my wow. co-author in the Age of Prophecy. And there was a very small Jewish population there. And I think had I gone to a place that had a lot of Jews, mm-hmm. I don't think I would have affiliated much. Uh, I was That's kind of how I grew up. I grew up in a place where half the people I knew were Jewish and it wasn't so exciting. We were reformed. We wasn't such a lit up type community. But when I got to a place where there was hardly any Jews at all, at a certain point, my friend Chaim told me about this, this group that was this Jewish group called the Chavarim that was meeting you know once a week on campus. Mm-hmm. And I went there after a month in school, and I made tons of friends in school, but I noticed there was an aspect of my personality that came out with this group of total strangers who were Jewish that wasn't coming out with my non-Jewish friends, kind of a shared culture, a shared sense of humor, a, an ease. And I started getting more and more involved in the Jewish community on campus. I became a leader on campus in the Jewish community. And then my third year, I wound up spending six months in Israel. Wow, and six months. That's amazing. Yeah, I did, a, did Olpan during the summer, and then I spent a semester studying the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we had half Israeli, half Palestinian professors. The idea was we're not going to find an unbiased opinion, so let's find as many different biased opinions as we can. And while there, I first became exposed to Orthodox Judaism. Mm-hmm. And my first thought about it 
was that I'd been robbed of an education. You know, here I was, I'd been in Hebrew school from first to 10th grade. I was a leader of my campus Jewish community. And I stepped into a yeshiva for the first time. And they were talking about things being the most basic concepts in Judaism that I'd never heard of. Wow. And I felt like, how many years of education had I gotten? And I haven't scratched the surface. And I felt like, what is this religion I was supposedly raised in Mm -hmm. all about? Because I don't know squat about it. And it was really out of that, it was a huge interest to learn that I really had no interest in practicing whatsoever. But I wound up going to yeshiva after graduation with a huge interest in learning, like, what is this Judaism thing really all about? Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. And after you got back, you continued your studies in Judaism? So I wound up spending a little over a year in yeshiva right Mm -hmm. after college. Okay. And... Then when I got back to the States, I wound up going to law school. One of the reasons why I left Israel was I was feeling like a fish out of water because here I was, I was one of the top students in the yeshiva, but I wasn't observant. So I was around all these people who were very orthodox and nobody knew that I wasn't really observant myself. I hadn't taken on Jewish practice. I was just so interested in learning, getting an education. So I was in this orthodox environment and a lot of people had no idea that I wasn't even an observant person myself and I'd kind of skipped the religious stuff. And it was only once I got back to the States and I was in, suddenly I wasn't surrounded by Judaism. It wasn't my daily life that I wound up feeling a lack and wanting to connect religiously. So like, obviously I, you know, I kept kosher and I kept Shabbat and there's no non-kosher food available, but it wasn't a choice. It wasn't a commitment. It was something that it, just occurred. It was something that just occurred. You know, I was in a Shomer Shabbat environment where everyone kept Shabbat. So I kept Shabbat. I was in a place where everyone ate, ate kosher food. So I ate kosher food. But it wasn't until I got back to the States and went to law school. I was at NYU Law. And while I was there, little by little, I started feeling like this complete disconnect. I'd been so immersed in Judaism. And I was feeling completely disconnected. And I started, didn't have really the time or so much the interest in studying when I was in America. But I wound up filling in that gap, that yearning that I had to connect with it, I filled it in with practice. And so little by little, over the course of the five years I was in America, I went from being hardly observant at all to being being quite observant Mm -hmm. and then i started feeling like a fish out of water in america because here i was i was a litigator for the natural resources defense council i was doing clean air clean water and endangered species type work Mm -hmm. and you know we'd be working on a case and when you're on the middle of a case the attorneys might be working seven days a week and friday afternoon i'd say see you later later guys i'm out of here it's shabbat i gotta go and nobody ever gave me a hard time for it but I felt like I wasn't holding up my end of the bargain. Mm-hmm. And once I had a two-year fellowship at this, this organization, and once I finished that, I came back to Israel. And suddenly I was in a society, now that I was this Orthodox Jew, I was in a society where everything functioned around my calendar, not theirs. You know, Shabbat was coming in, and in Jerusalem, there's a siren that goes off, letting everybody wow. know Shabbat's coming, Whoa. light your candles, get ready. It was a totally different, different environment. It was a total shift for me. And whereas before I'd felt like a fish out of water because here I was, I was this non-Orthodox guy in an Orthodox environment. It didn't feel true to me. Mm -hmm. By the time I came back, within 24 hours, I'm like, I am home. I never want to leave here again. That's absolutely amazing. Now, I've heard a little bit about the neighborhood that you moved to. Um, Could you tell me a little bit about that neighborhood and how in the entire story of you know, the fish out of water and now feeling like you're at home. Tell me about your home. Absolutely. So when I was coming back to Israel, I knew I wanted to go first to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. 
And so I pulled all of my friends who knew Israel better than I did, Mm -hmm. who I thought were most similar to me, who are on the same kind of general vibe. And I said, if you were to move to Jerusalem, where would you go? Every single one of them said Nachlod. Wow. So I went online. I found myself like this furnished apartment, and I've just moved right into Nachlod. And we've basically been there since, except for a short stint when we decided to go to the Golan for a couple of years. We've basically been in Nachlod since. It's a very funky neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It's probably the most diverse Jewish community in the world. Wow. There are, you know, Nachlod was one of the first neighborhoods created outside the old city. And it's called... Nachlaot was a nachal is kind of like a portion. So people would be coming in to Israel from all over the world when, you know, the early part of the, the 20th century. And the, the old, over, old city was overpacked. And so they needed to put them somewhere. And the, the <laughs> late, the, even before the 20th century, even like the late 1800s, where do you put all these people who are coming in? So they started creating this neighborhood. And each kind of community would come in. A community would come in from Morocco. They'd get, you know, a little courtyard with its, a communal cistern and a communal oven, and then a community would come in from, from Iran. Okay, they'd get their little, their little place. Everyone would get their own little kind of courtyard, and they'd get their own little nachal, their own little portion. And so our tiny little community has over 50 shuls, many of them now defunct, from every different walk of life in Judaism. You know, in the mornings, sometimes I go to an, a Litvish Ashkenazi minion. Sometimes if I'm getting up a little bit later, I go to this Hasidic Ashkenazi minion. I go to this wow. party. The, the, this Moroccan Sephardi uh, minion in the afternoon, evening, and it's just everyone kind of lives together in this harmonious way. And it's not just a religious Jews. It's not an all-religious neighborhood. Mm-hmm. This became a neighborhood that had a lot of, a lot of secular living there as well. For a while, it's, it's right downtown, but for a while, it was kind of a rundown area. And so all these artists wanted moving in. We've got probably like half the musicians, you know, <laughs> the famous musicians in, the, in Israel like live like in our neighborhood. We've got a whole circle of artists in all kinds of different areas. We like to joke that, you know, if you want to live in Nachlo, you have to either write a book or be a yoga instructor. <laughs> it's like this is a very kind of hip, fun, warm place. It's very eclectic part of Jerusalem. And we just absolutely love it there. See, that's funny because when most people think from the West, what, you know, the United States and in Europe, when they think of Jerusalem, they don't think of a trendy hip neighborhood like Naklot, which it, it's, it's fascinating. I can't wait. I don't, I've never been there, so I will be visiting. So keep the door open. Awesome. Well, um, when I was in law school, I lived in, in Greenwich Village. I like to say like Naklot is the Greenwich Village of Jerusalem. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, actually, you brought up law school, and that brings up an interesting question that I have. And then we'll go into another subject. But you did Talmudic studies. You you studied the Torah. You looked into it, and you're also a lawyer. Yes. So recovering, but yes, <laughs> recovering. That's so awesome. Now, being a lawyer, you look at the law as being a static. There can be uh, maneuverability within it, but it is an edifice unto itself. It is itself. It is the law. Now, when we look at the Torah, it is itself as well. But there are so many different doors that open up inside it. What is the I mean, you're, you're balancing two different, are you balancing two different lines of thought when you look at both of them and when you step foot in both of those worlds? So it's a funny thing. So right after college, I spent a year backpacking around the world mm-hmm. and I was supposed to spend one year backpacking and then go to law school. 
And I realized that, you know, nine months into my backpacking, that I was in no mental space to handle like a rigorous <laughs> academic environment. And I wanted to learn more about Judaism. Okay. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to go to the most rigorous academic environment I've ever been in. I'm going to go to yeshiva for three months, get myself sharp, and then learn a bit more about Judaism and then go to law school. Okay. At, it worked in terms of the sharp side. It didn't work in terms of the three month side because I decided at the end of three months, no, I need another year. And I stayed another year in yeshiva. <laughs> but I remember going to law school and being incredibly disappointed as I started learning about U.S. law because I'd been in such a rigorous environment of learning about Jewish law. I was kind of expecting those same standards to exist in the U.S. Wow. law I was studying. And I got to law school and we start reading all of these cases. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing over and over again that you know, a judge basically decides who he or she wants to side with. And then uses the law to shape together an argument as to why their opinion is the right one according to law. Okay. But it's like so much like the biases they have going into a case rather than kind of a very pure looking at the law. In Judaism, there is very much this idea like this law has divinity to it. It's got power to it. We don't mess with it. We don't try to, you know, mold it to our perceptions of how we should be living our lives. You know, if we are maybe not living up to it sometimes, okay, we all have flaws. We're not maybe all hitting at that highest level, but don't try to pretend that it is something that it is not. Yeah. Whereas in U.S. law, I didn't see that at all. Like, you know, the Supreme Court, for instance, they're in some ways like a law unto themselves. You know, they can choose to, to eradicate laws. They can choose to basically create laws. And you see, like, the Supreme Court's opinions are not so much based upon, well, what does the Constitution say what does the law say? It's much more based upon what do I feel the law should be? Wow. And, you know, you, you, people will do a count of the Supreme Court justices. They'll say, okay, there's, there's nine of them. We know this one feels this way. This one feels this way. This one feels this way. Is it worth bringing this, court to the, this case to the Supreme Court or is it not? Because we know the different political opinions of the different judges and they're going to use that to shape their understanding of the law. Whereas in the Torah law, I found it much more authentic to everyone learning it and all the great sages we study in it, they had their different opinions on it, but all coming from the place of I am small next to it, which is large, which is it, which is substantial. And I want to be as authentic to it as possible. And they had different takes. Mm -hmm. Whereas I felt like in the U S law, it was much more like, no, I am substantial. I have the power to mold it, this body of law to, to my opinions and what I feel the outcome should be. That's amazing. Um, you're going to love this segue because this is going to be the weirdest segue you've ever had. So, um, when you were a kid, did you go to on a tour of the old, old state house in Hartford? I don't think so. Okay. Do you know the building I'm talking about? And if you don't, that's okay. I'm not sure I do. So I remember it. It was a big deal. Constitution State. Come on, let's go. We're going to the old state house. Everyone get on the bus. When we went there, inside one of the rotundas, they have a a big statue. And it's the original statue that stood on top of the old state house. And it's justice. And she's holding balances. And she's blindfolded. And it's funny because you're saying, to me, my perception is, that she is not what the law is based on in U.S., which is what it should be, which mirrors in many ways what the law in Judaism is. Yeah, and it's a question of whether it should be. Like, 
I want to okay. be clear. I'm not necessarily saying that that is bad. No, no, right? I, I'm because, not. Because really in Judaism, we believe the law has a divine root to it. We believe it is bigger than us. You know, to a certain extent, you can make the argument that what the Supreme Court is doing is a really good thing because law needs to evolve. And certain, you know, the society is evolving and it wasn't divinely given that law. Okay. It was just made by people who have all of these flaws and there's people with different flaws who are now interpreting it. And each time it kind of reflects the values of the time. It reflects the value of the time the laws or the constitution was created. And now the interpretations reflect the, the values of the people who are living in the modern age and the different issues that are, we're having in the modern age. Okay. So there's a, there's a real difference when understanding that the law is very created by humans who with their flawed perceptions. Mm-hmm. Or understanding, wow, we are trying to understand divine law. We're trying to understand, connect to something given by God that has a greater weight to it than anything anybody could create. And when you start with that perception, it's a huge shift. So maybe the Supreme Court is completely right, or the legislators are totally right to be saying that, you know, things change. You know, you talk about Connecticut and Mm -hmm. looking at its history. When the Constitution was created, we had something called the Connecticut Compromise. The Connecticut Compromise said that a, you know, a black person would be considered three for three mm-hmm. fifths of a of a human. I don't might have only been, might have only applied to slaves, but mm-hmm. you know we had that idea, and now we look at that as being this absolutely revolting concept. And you're saying the evolution, so yeah? There, there's there's an evolution, like this great compromise that allowed the Constitution to come together was now something we look at as being an absolutely revolting concept. So like you know. The people who are flawed were trying to like understand things of the at the day, and they were trying to do their best to come to some understanding. And they came up with this thing that we now look at and say, "Ugh, we'd never want to touch that." But with Torah law, we don't really have that. We have this idea that you know what, there are things in there that don't necessarily make sense to me that I don't mm-hmm. relate to. But maybe I have to become bigger. I have to learn more. I have to strengthen myself to understand it because it is greater than me. Okay, which we don't have when we're looking at U.S. law. No, definitely. And here is where the segue comes in. I saw that in a character in your book, in Uriah, the the prophet who wandered the land, who everyone had questions. Lev, one of the characters in the book, the main character in the book. But Uriah seemed to be the soul of Israel. Now, if you could go and give us a quick overview of the age of the prophets. Absolutely. So let me, let me tell you a bit about how this whole series came about, because I think it's a pretty fascinating story. This so, is, oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> Go on, please. So it's a funny thing that even when I was in yeshiva and studying, mostly what we study in the yeshiva is Talmud, is Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. And we don't tend to study the later books of the Bible. We tend to study the first five, the Torah. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole bunch of books in the Bible that are also part of the Bible, and we don't really look at them. We, they've kind of bypassed them in favor of Gomorrah study. Mm-hmm. And I was really curious to be learning those, those different stories and those different books. And I wound up leaving kind of a traditional yeshiva and being part of starting a, a different one. And this was going to be a big focus of ours, was going in and really digging into these stories. Really? And I absolutely found the study to be so fascinating. I loved these stories. And at the same time, we had a class going on that was, since we were learning the books of the prophets, Mm -hmm. we were learning about the inner workings of prophecy. So 
on the one hand, in my Torah study, I was learning about the stories of the prophets and how prophecy worked. And at the same time, I was finishing Harry Potter 7 for the third time. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, this is crazy. Like, if Hogwarts really existed, people would be breaking down the doors to get in and try to learn what they, they mm -hmm. had to teach. And here we've got this whole incredibly magical realm of Judaism that I've never learned, I've never been exposed to. It kind of gets ignored in favor of Gomorrah study. Mm -hmm. And I had this thought, somebody needs to create a Harry Potter type story set in the world of the prophets. Wow. And my first thought, being a businessman, was who can I hire to do this? <laughs> and after a couple of weeks, I realized, you know what? I'm not a writer. I've never done this. But if I have a vision of something I want to create, mm -hmm. I can't delegate that. No, so, no. That's fabulous that you, you found the fortitude to do that. So I think most writers out in the world really start with a passion to write and they write this thing 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 and they, this thing and they keep trying until they get it right. Mm -hmm. I came from the opposite perspective. I had no desire to be a writer, but I envisioned a series that I thought had to come into being. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to keep working on this, learning writing skills and working on this until I basically become a writer. And book one took me six years. Please I, show it I, while I, you're I talking. I wrote book one over a six year period and I literally just rewrote it beginning to end, beginning to end, beginning to end. Mm -hmm. by Dozens of times. You don't have to hold it up all the time. I, I don't want you to get Until time. I kind of got the sense <laughs> of, okay, this story's starting to come together. This book is starting to come together. It's, it's phenomenal. It is so, for those of you who haven't read it, and please, I hope, <laughs> um, it is like Johnny Tremaine with Lord of the Rings, with Harry Potter all together. Uh, uh, are you familiar with Johnny Tremaine? Did you have to read that when you were in elementary school? That was the one from the Revolutionary War, right? Where the, it's the the uh, silversmith apprentice. He got, he got his hand. He got his hand yeah. uh, messed up by the by the midwife, and he couldn't uh, be the silversmith anymore. And he that. wound up working for Paul Revere. So it, he was this tertiary character to everything that was happening in the American Revolution. And the same thing with your main character, Lev. So far. So far, don't spoil it for me. Um, he is this uh, just orbiting character to all of these amazing events that are going on. Can you describe the time, place, the setting um, where all of this happens? Absolutely. So my absolute favorite story from this whole world of the prophets is the story of Eliyahu, better known as Elijah. Yes. And What's fascinating to me about him is that we're, you know, we're familiar with this motif of this evil king and the righteous prophet and the mm -hmm. two of them battling it out. But as I started digging into the sources around the Eliyahu story, I saw that there's actually a lot of places that Eliyahu, for all his righteousness, is really criticized in the path that he's taking. And the king, for all his evil, was right about a lot of things that Eliyahu was missing. And so to me, there's a lot of gray area in this story, much so, more so than other stories we have a very clear hero and, you know, clear person who is the righteous one and a clear person who is the evil one. Mm -hmm. And a story that has a lot of gray to it is a great way to really dig in and ask the big questions about, well, what are our lives supposed to be about? How should a prophet exist in the world? How should a king exist in the world? How should an ordinary individual exist in the world? But 
Eliyahu himself is left as so much of a mysterious character in the Bible. And to write a story about Eliyahu that fills in all the gaps, that makes him into a, you know, a 3D character taken from little bits and pieces, it felt wrong. I feel like our tradition left him as a very mysterious character. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make up a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of relationships with people who didn't exist, a whole bunch of dialogues he never had in order to create a full enough character to write a book around. I feel like we should leave him largely as a mystery because that's how our tradition has, has created him. So I created fictional characters living at the time of Eliyahu who could then be interacting with him and being interacting with living in this giant war that he starts. He starts this war and it winds up leaving to the, to the prophets being hunted by this, this evil queen. And it's an incredibly fascinating period of time. So rather than mess with biblical characters too much, Mm-hmm. I created a whole fictional layer on top of the biblical story. So we follow Lev and Uriel and others as they're living in this world. And they're living in this world that is very peaceful at first mm-hmm. before war breaks out. And then, you know, they're adjusting and scrambling as war breaks out and they're being hunted. And we're really able through this story to look into so many different aspects of Judaism and you know, say what Torah is about and what our connection is about, what idolatry was about, what did the world of the Bible look like? You know, one of the big problems we have is that the Bible was written for contemporaries. There's going to be no description about what people wore or how people ate or how they lived Mm -hmm. because the people who are reading it at the time it was written knew all that stuff and they weren't wasting words (laughs) talking about unnecessary things. I've never thought of that. But now we live in a world with iPhones. Our realities are so drastically different. We are so removed from what it meant to be living in that time Mm -hmm. that we actually miss a lot of the cues in the Bible that are talking about things that we're we're not picking up on. And we're just completely missing the significance of it because we didn't know what they had and what they didn't have. We didn't, we don't have a picture of what their lives were like. So I wanted to really bring to life what it meant to be living in the times of the Bible in a way that someone could put themselves in the story and get context for it. Like a drought these days means that, you know, okay, you try to take shorter showers, you know, but it's, we're not really, you know, we, we, want, we religiously watch like the level of the canary in our house, like, oh, we had a good rain, cool, <laughs> the canary's going up. But really the water coming out of our pipes comes whether the canary has a good year or the canary has a bad year. And now we've got desalination in, in Israel and we're becoming even less dependent on the canary. You know, if we had no rainfall for a year, like we'd be okay. But man, a lack of rain back then, a drought that Eliyahu brings, I mean, it's catastrophe. Your crops aren't going to grow. People are going to get ill. Disease is going to spread. It's, you don't have these, this ability to even store food like we have these days. You're so incredibly dependent upon the rain. So I wanted to really give context to all that and really make the whole story flesh that whole thing out. So speaking of fleshing things out, um, your world that you create has a lot of detail in it. Um, almost to the point where you could picture yourself standing on that King's Road. Now, how were you able to get this? Is, is this just imaginative, illustrative detail? Or was what type of research was done into this? I know that Mike Foyer is a, a co-author. Yes. Am I correct on that? Um, and he was originally a researcher. Can you just describe how you were able to create this world that didn't have contemporary uh, uh, description. Absolutely. So 
let me give one small example of the research we did, which I think is a funny story. So when we were in Boston during the summer, there's okay. a Semitic museum where they have a rebuilt house from the first temple period. Wow. And it's filled with all these artifacts that are real artifacts they found on digs in Israel from the period when I was writing. And we were supposed to be leaving my son, who was very young at the time, maybe like three, mm-hmm. with my sister. And Hannah and I were going to go to this museum and try to see what we could learn about this, this house and about the way people lived back then. But it didn't work out. We couldn't leave, we couldn't leave Ari left, so we wound up taking him. <laughs> and we walk into this museum, and there's this house that's totally reconstructed. And my son starts going up to it and like reaching in and like you know, grabbing at things, and this alarm goes off. And it winds up being this incredible blessing because the alarm goes off. So it brings like, you know, the head of the museum, brings the curator of the museum down. And we're able to like interview the curator of the museum and ask all of these questions, you know, as we're standing in front of a reconstructed first temple house about how they lived, how they ate, how they did all of these other things. And it was funny at a certain point I turned to Hannah and I said, you know what? The idols in this house, those are real idols. People actually worship them. These were things that were found on digs. These were 3,000-year-old idols. We have a commandment to destroy these things. And the curator looks at me and says, Eliyahu would be proud. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just one example of an extensive amount of research we did. You know, we read so many different books on archaeology. On, you know, Mike himself is a geologist. He was an outdoor, outdoor guide. He has, has such a vast knowledge of the biblical stories and the Tanakh and walking the land of Israel. That's why I originally had brought him in as a research assistant to help me Mm -hmm. add some of this color to the story. It turns out his writing went above and beyond what I ever expected. And so he wound up becoming a co-author of the series. But there was just an absolute ton of research that was done. And then here and there, we had to kind of fill in details that Mm -hmm. we didn't know the answers to. So actually, just a couple months ago, Mike received a grant to do uh, what we call the Go Further edition of the Lamp of Darkness, basically a teacher's edition. Wow. So now you go through the Lamp of Darkness if you get that edition, and it's got asterisks in different places just indicating, okay, there's a note in the back. So kind of like the math books I had growing up in, you know, in high school, they had all these problems that we were doing, and the teachers, they had the edition that had all the answers in the back, and they could just flip to the back and like, see what the actual answer is. That's kind of what, what that edition is. It, it shows all the different sources, all the different places we were getting all of our answers for, going into the Talmud, going into archaeology, going to all different realms. And then it also explains that, you know what? We didn't have an answer here, and so we filled in the gap. Okay. Know, a good example of that is that at no point do we ever see a clear indication of what tribe Ahav was from. Oh, all right. So it, we don't have that information. But we do see that his father had basically won a civil war. And before him, you know, all the dynasties of the kings of Israel, had, they didn't last very long. There was a lot, of, a lot of coups. There was a lot of people overthrowing them. There was a lot of you know, assassinations of the royal families. And when he wins the civil war, he picks up from the old capital and moves to the new capital, Shomron. Mm-hmm. The old capital was in the tribal area of Ephraim. And the new capital was in the tribal area of Menashe. And so it made sense to me that if somebody is going to pick up a capital from one area and move it to another area, that he would want to move it to his own tribal lands, especially because the old capital had so much infighting, Mm -hmm. so much political gamesmanship, so much assassinations. You want to watch your back. You want the people of your own tribe 
to be the one surrounding you to really protect you. Wow. So we speculated that the house of Ahab, the house of Omri, were from the tribe of Manasseh because politically it made sense to us that if they were going to move the capital into Manasseh's territory, it was probably because that's where they came from. But there's no source for that. It's just our looking at it and logically filling in a gap. That's fascinating. And that um, that version, I actually have someone that I'm going to... I'm going to have to get those for uh, Professor Terry Wasserman at the City College of New York. She was my, um, it's funny, she had so many different courses uh, and all of them dealt with the land of Israel and the ancient land of Israel. She, she speaks ancient languages. So I'm going to, I'm you've got one sale already. So um, that's awesome. Now, the the age of prophecy that is um the two books that you've written have you thought of writing in any other periods are there there any other periods that you are interested in where where a story along the lines of what you've done here which is amazing i okay so i read it the majority of the book in a day it was fascinating um, and I'm interested in seeing if you want to do the same thing with another period. No. Okay. No, I don't. The Age of Prophecy series is intended to be a five book series mm-hmm. and it all follows one, one period of time. It all follows the main character, Lev. And so that alone. Oh, so wait a minute. So we're at the beginning. We're at the beginning. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah. So this is, and this is a, this is really kind of a lifelong process. And, um, you know, book one took me six years. Book two took me four years. These books take a lot of work because I need to be authentic mm-hmm. to the sources. You know, I, we are so careful with everything we write in the book because we're trying to explain to people what the Bible was about, what so many of these concepts were about. And we feel like, like I was saying with the law, mm-hmm. we feel like there's a higher authority here that we really want to be as as true to as possible. So my other books are so much faster to write. And so I, I really see myself writing in parallel, writing the five books of the age of prophecy. And though mm-hmm. I imagine it'll take me four or five years per volume. And this is something I'll be doing for quite a few years to come is finishing off this series. And at the same time, I'm just an absolute personal growth junkie. <laughs> and I love writing. I've started writing a series of books with my wife actually. And these are personal growth novels because just like the age of prophecy, I believe that people learn best through story. You know, I could have taught all of these concepts about the Bible. There are so many books talking about life in the times of the Bible or talking about Eliyahu. I could have written a nonfiction book just spilling everything out and citing the Talmud and such, Mm -hmm. but it wouldn't immerse you in the story the way a novel does. So we try to do the exact same thing with other concepts we want to be teaching. So, for instance, we just came out with a book a couple weeks ago. And the story of that is that I've had some success in business Mm -hmm. in terms of making money over the years. But nonetheless, we found ourselves in a difficult financial strait because we didn't actually know what to do with money after we made it. (laughs) We made poor choices about how we should spend it, about how we should allocate it. We didn't have it. We were fine as long as we were only making as much as we needed to live on. But once we started making more than we needed to live on, Suddenly, well, I felt all greedy. I didn't know what to do. What should we, how we, should we handle that? And I wanted, wanted to create jobs for people, and I wanted hiring a staff so much bigger than my business could support and driving myself into debt, like stupid, stupid things. 
And for me, like if I want to learn a concept, there's no better way to understand it mm -hmm. than to research and write a book on the subject, a novel on the subject. So for instance, the age of prophecy, it's not like I had all this knowledge and therefore I decided to write it down in a, in a series. Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn about the biblical period. So I started writing the age of prophecy series and that forced me to do all this research and get all this perspective. Two years ago, I realized, you know, I need to understand so much more about money. And so we started right, researching and writing, you know, this book, The Cash Machine, which is a novel. It's a love story. And it teaches literally hundreds of financial lessons that helps people become like financially literate when they read this book. But they're going to be engaged the entire time. You're going to feel the tension of this romance of this, this whole time. And the, through it, they're going to be learning these different takes on money and different strategies to be making smarter financial choices. So That's phenomenal. So we kind of split ourselves between, you know, I write, I usually like to go to the Beit Midrash in the mornings. And I'm right now learning Dafyomi with a, with a Haruta, with a study partner. Mm -hmm. We're learning a page of the Talmud a day. And then I'll switch over and I'll write some of Age of Prophecy. And then in the afternoons, I'll work on my other books like The Cash Machine, like this other book, The, the Size of Your Dreams, which Please, teaches... Please, yes. This one, this one actually came from a tremendous experience we had. I, again, I was, um, I was saying that how you know, we found ourselves in difficult financial straits. Mm -hmm. So much so, in fact, that we needed to be selling our house at a certain point. We realized oh, wow. to get ourselves out of it. And we'd, we'd over-invested in the house such that it was now, to get our money back, we needed to get more than kind of the market in our neighborhood would bear. It, it was worth it, because we put so much into it, yeah. but it needed to find that right buyer. And so I, I'd learned this, I'd studied this book, Think and Grow Rich, and I'd learned these kind of concepts. And based on the concepts I'd learned, I started a practice in my life where I took a note card and I wrote on this note card that I intended to sell my house at 43 Beersheba Street by, for a certain amount of money that we needed to get by July 27th, 2015. Okay. And to do this, I will do all the following. And I went through all these various steps of what I would do. And I read it every morning and I read it every night and I read it a couple times during the day. And as one thing wouldn't work, I'd cross out that step and I'd write something else, another strategy I was going to, going to work on. And I just did this over and over and over again. And after we wound up selling the house, we had a little, came back for like a little lachayim with the buyers who were friends of ours actually. <laughs> and I brought up this note card and I showed this to them. And they looked at it, they're like, what is this? And I said, I've been doing this every day for six months. And they were... Oh shocked because the day was July 27th, 2015, and we'd sold the house for exactly that amount of money on the card. And I'd learned this power of setting these intentions and this whole way of accomplishing things. And that was one of the, the note cards that I wound up using in my life. But we wound up creating this whole novel that's it's set in a high school classroom, and it teaches these skills. It teaches a lot of things from Think and Grow Rich and other kind of personal growth classics. But we say it's like Think and Grow Rich meets Dead Poet Society. Wow. Because it's this novel that kind of engages you in this world. You're with these characters as they're trying to figure out what they should be trying to achieve in their lives and how they learn the skills to be actually achieving them. And so this is what I, lo I love to do. So in the mornings, I kind of work on Age of Prophecy. Mm -hmm. And then in the afternoons, I work on these books that are really in the areas that I feel like either I need to be growing in mm -hmm. and my writing, researching and writing is the way that I'm going to be growing or like, wow, I've discovered something so powerful. Like with the size of your dreams, I felt like after selling the house estate, I'm like, this is so powerful. I need to be teaching these techniques to people. And so we wound up taking them and making it into a whole novel. And people tell us all the time that like this book has changed their lives. Awesome. Awesome. Um, 
I am going to put descriptions for all of these in the YouTube um, version of this podcast. Uh, I'll put Amazon links to all the books if that's okay. Or if you'd like a different link, we can do that. Amazon's great. And two of the books, by the way, are totally free on Amazon right now. Really? The Size Your Dreams is totally free as a download on Amazon. The, the Lamp of Darkness is totally free as a download. Like, thank God we have a we we have a uh, an income source. Mm-hmm. I've got a business. Book writing doesn't make a lot of money in general. It's not where we really depended on. We just want people to be able to access them and learn them. So please take the size of your dreams for free. Take the lamp of darkness for free. If you prefer the hard copy, okay, you got to pay for that because that, that's you know <laughs> that costs us something out of cut out of pocket. So you know we can't give that one away for free. But like we make these books, at least you know the first ones free to get people excited about it. We want to put the tools in your hands. Well, you bring a lot to the world, and I'm going to help you bring it to a larger audience. So um, thank you. Thank you, Dave. Dave, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we go? Just that it was, it was great having this conversation. It's hard to believe, like you know, the, you know the time the time passed. It feels like it's been a been a few minutes. <laughs> but I've just so enjoyed speaking to you, and I really hope your audience, you know, can check this out and really use these books mm-hmm. to deepen their own connection. We hope the lamp, the age of prophecy, is really all about deepening your own connection to. What is Israel about? What is Torah about? What is this world supposed to be about through a Jewish lens? And these other books are much more about, okay, how can I achieve more, do more, mm-hmm. be more you know, integral to myself? How can I be happier in my life and more successful in my life? And I really hope your viewers are able to take these things and use them to take their lives to another level. And if they do, I want to hear from them. So please, you know, let me know if this does impact your life. I'd love receiving feedback from readers who say that, wow, this totally changed my perspective. This totally helped me take my life to another level. And I hope it can do the same for, for all of your, your audience. Awesome. Thank you, Dave. Dave, thank you so much. It was an honor having you on the show. Pleasure being on. Awesome. All right. That's it guys. Love